never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to Neff Inspiration, a show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today I've got Bob Gardner with me and today will be a good day because Bob has developed a no-nonsense approach to dealing with trauma. And God knows we all have, most of us have gone through quite significant trauma. And the sheer fact that you're listening to this podcast or watching this video, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a proud member of the shit family. Um, so that's all cool. But I think today when we listen to Bob, there might actually be a few solutions there waiting for us. And I certainly, well, life is not so easy at the moment. I can't wait to talk to Bob. Bob, welcome to my show. Thank you, Stefan. I'm so excited to be here. This should, this should be a fun ride. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly right. Bob, no one ever, ever woke up at, you know, at the age of 10 and said, hey, man, you know what? I'm going to write a book and I'm going to uh, make a no-nonsense approach. I will help people deal with trauma. Right. Said no child ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So how did your path start? It started, well, I mean, I was young enough to have a childhood, which for most people ends up having some form of thing that they call trauma. My childhood, my parents were great, but we moved around a lot. I was in the military. I actually lived in Germany for about <laughs> almost six years. And um, in the process, I sort of started to develop this sense of myself like I was an outsider, like I didn't belong. And then I would have to kind of like figure out how to change myself in order to fit into social situations. And as we kept moving around, what I found is an escape for that from was pornography at first. Mm. So there I was in the bathroom or in the closet, hiding, looking at pictures, figuring out how the plumbing works and deciding that that feels a lot better than trying to figure out if that girl likes me or if these friends are going to be okay with me and all the other stuff. Yeah. So it feels great. I'm discovering things. I'm figuring it out on my own. And uh, then I hear in church that uh, this is a bad thing. And I've already done it. And it's so bad that it's like just shy of murder in, in sort of like the hierarchy of sins for me growing up. So, <laughs> oh, so I'm so I'm like, oh, dear, this is bad. And I've already done it. So I can't tell. And then, you know, I'm, so I wrestle with this for about 18 years, 18 years of my life. I'm off and on binging, not binging, trying to get better, praying, testing things out, going to 12 step meetings or 12 step meetings associated with pornography and sexual addiction. Mm. And in the middle of this. I'm going through massive bipolar mood swings, manic at mm. times, really on top of the world, and then massive mm. slump. And I refuse to go get seen by anybody because I don't want more proof that I'm broken. And um, and then I'm, I'm walking the streets at night sometimes, hoping to be hit by a bus. Just like, I don't want to exist anymore, but I don't want to cause anybody pain. So I don't want to take my life, but I don't want to be alive. And my wife is struggling. I have four kids at the time. And then my wife finally is like, I can't do it anymore. And I'm done. And uh, that was a moment where I was like, I was struggling with so much pain on the inside. And on the outside, I looked charismatic. I was running a martial arts school. I was doing all these different things. But on the inside, it was just this nonstop voice in my head and this struggle emotionally. And then all of a sudden, I have to face down the barrel of a gun of, oh, and you're going to do it alone for the rest of your life, and you're not going to see your kids anymore. And it scares me into controlling my behavior, these addictive behaviors and compulsive behaviors. And it wasn't just pornography. I got into psychedelics at a certain point and started using those as an escape. I've definitely binged a lot of sugar <laughs> and, and YouTube. 
And so it was anything that I could find to try and wake myself up out of my nightmare. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of that, um, I got into these 12 step meetings and, and was looking at online programs and books and everything else I could find psychologists, psychiatrists, all these people. And the, the consensus was, this is something that you're going to deal with for life. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be free of it. You were handed this, whether it's depression or anxiety, whether it's addiction or anything else, the common consensus is these are not things that are curable. You can manage mm-hmm. them to the point where they don't affect you so much, but you're always going to have to be on your guard. And so I'm in there. And then one day I'm Jasmine, my wife leaves home to go pick up the kids. I'm standing in my office because I teach Kung Fu at night and I look over at the computer and it's there tantalizing. And I'm like, I feel this cold rush. My hands start shaking. I feel the adrenaline hit and this chemical flush through my brain. And I'm, my heart's beating and I'm like, oh no. And the fight starts. And in that moment, I have some sort of like DMT out of body experience where I have a vision of myself at 90 years old, still in the same spot on the carpet, still with the same struggle. And I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I can't do it anymore. I cannot do it the way I've been doing it because the way I've been doing it has led me to this. So that day I like throw out all of the, the wisdom I'd been taught. And some of it was great. I mean, I learned great things. It was helpful for periods of time. And I go, I gotta go back to the drawing board. And all I had was, my history of learning how to work with the body, learning how to understand it, learning how to breathe and move and all this stuff from martial arts. So I start diving into that. I dive into some other psychological processes. And within a really short amount of time, I started finding that I felt incredible on the inside. And all of these like worries and urges and stuff were going away on their own. I wasn't focusing on them. Mm -hmm. I had like, instead of being in the arena, fighting with the sweaty guy, that glorious man over of armpit sweat and all that other stuff. Instead of being there, whether I was win or losing, but always being in the arena, I had sort of left the arena and focused on creating a life of just ease and buoyancy inside of my own body. And then all these problems started to go away on their own. And as I continued that, it started to become an instinct to where something negative would happen. And I would watch my body handle it in this beautiful way. And I'd be like, sweet, and move on. And so I didn't do anything with that for about four years. I was just like, okay, weirdo found something out that worked for him. And <laughs> I kept teaching and I kept, and my students were getting great results. Like they were finding freedom from some emotional stuff, things I was teaching in my my martial arts classes and physical pains and things. And then I had a business coach go like, dude, there's people struggling. Like there's lots of martial arts schools on the planet, but nobody knows how to handle these things and really truly get rid of them for good. You owe it to them. And he intimidated me. So I was like, yeah, third. And uh, that was like six years ago, six and a half years ago. And I started out trying to help people. <laughs> I love it how you you described that moment of truth, that moment of clarity, that out-of-body experience where you saw yourself. And that was beautiful. But more importantly, I loved the way that you describe yourself in the arena and that you were essentially always a fighter um, for many, many reasons. And I identified myself, and probably still to this day do so, um, as a, I'm a man, I'm a survivor, look what I've gone through, uh, all that shit, here I am, you know? It's that kind of still fighter, fight or flight, after all. Um, whilst you said, well, actually, how about <laughs> we stop that? 
uh, for a moment and step outside of the arena where there might be peace and of where suddenly things don't look so bad anymore. That is powerful. That is cool. Um, but normally that that I mean that doesn't happen overnight because you 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 for decades you've been fighting. So how do you deal with that? What steps did you take to sort of uh, create a habit? Because that's what really, really what needs to happen. Um, you have had the habit of being a fighter. So how did you reinvent yourself? Yeah, in this case, I think it came down to a, an awareness of complete desperation. That if I continued on, like, you know, if you're in a car and driving and you're like determined that this is the right way to go, and then all of a sudden you see like a train in front of you, okay. it's not going to take much to get you to turn around and do something different. <laughs> you know, and okay. this is the thing with people's their, their beliefs about themselves and their beliefs about what needs to happen. The fighting spirit is still in me, but I'm no longer fighting a specter. See, the, the notion of addiction is a theory. It was a theory that was proposed by some of the founding fathers in the United States. It was picked up by some great advertisers in the late 1800s who were saying things like alcoholism is a disease and I can cure you. Things that you can't actually say in advertising anymore because like there are laws against it, <laughs> but I can cure you. And so like his name was Keeley, Leslie Keeley, and he was a, an army doctor that was picking up on some alchemical texts from like the 16th century and like decided that there's this cold gold cure. And if he adds gold and some other little chemicals in there with this Irish chemist of his, we can cure alcoholism. So he comes in and he has people come to his little center and he he's they're allowed to drink as much as they want. And he's feeding them these concoctions, whether it's the red one or the blue one or whatever else it is. <laughs> it's like this massive spa experience. Not everybody can can pay for it. Yeah. And uh, and pe some people are really getting free of it and others aren't. And nobody really understands what's going on. It turns out it was quack doctory. It was a lot of placebo stuff. Of course. Really good quack doctory because some people got results, but he started selling his little concoctions over, over the counter. And then people realized there's no gold in it. And there's, you know, a lot of the stuff in it. They're like, yeah, I guess this would make you nauseated if you took it with alcohol, but it had alcohol in it. So he was uh, essentially maybe trying to make people have a different association with alcohol. Like uh -huh. if every time they drank it, it was nauseating which is an interesting way of doing it. But then this idea of addiction sort of picked up it, that it's a disease. And that happened at a perfect time in American history. Like there has been, there had been so much like revivalism and Protestantism and all of these things to pushing for like addiction is this moral failing. Never mind the fact that the first addicts in ancient Rome, the word addictus meant just to say yes to something or to be sold an addict with somebody who was sold into slavery or into servitude or something. But the very first ones were people who had said yes to or given their lives to religion. So the very first addicts were actually like priests and monks and, and like all these people. And, and over time, it evolved into no, no, you're a reprobate. And it's a character flaw. It's something morally off with you. And that weight... I mean, you know, like it's a lot to carry, especially if you're a kid, especially, you know, if you've been through a lot of hard things in your life and you're, you you found that alcohol dims it or some hit of heroin helps you finally escape that for a moment hmm. uh, or pornography or whatever else it is. And so all this weight of, oh, no, not only do you have this problem, you're also broken and you're miserable and God hates you, but he loves you enough that if you will continue to say that you're broken for the rest of your life, maybe you'll make it, you know? <laughs> and so like this, it's, 
at that point, that's a lot. And so then the, the, the country sort of like got swept up into this idea. No, it's a disease. It's physical. We can pinpoint it. We can look at it. It's, it's, it's not religious. It's not your fault. It's just something like you have this mm -hmm. thing that went on without question for a number of years, in early 1920s. Some people are like, let's pin it down. So they get these opiate addict, opioid addicts and they're pulling them in and they're trying to test every possible biometric control they can. It's really in-depth study and they can't find anything that distinguishes an addict biologically from somebody who has the jitters before a game. Like the withdrawal symptoms they found outside of detox from like toxicity of alcohol, toxicity or something like that, that the actual notion of addiction, they can't find it. And over and over again, this happens, that there is no biological basis for the notion of addiction. And so, but that happened already when the rest of, you know, the urban myth is that it's a real thing. And then 12 steps pick it up. And then in the 1940s, that becomes like a sanctioned program. Until now, everybody still talks about addiction as if it's a thing, reality. No one in any lab anywhere, anywhere has ever found a molecule of addiction. It doesn't run through your veins. It doesn't zing through your nerves. It's not there. So what is it? Other than a label people are putting on a series of experiences. And when I challenged that, the fighter in me was like, whoa, hold on a second. Let's stick the label. Let me tear the label off the jar so I can actually see what's inside. Mm -hmm. And I look inside and I see these experiences I'm having boil down to how am I breathing? How am I eating? How am I moving? Mm. How am I talking? What's my posture like? Mm. There's simple physical things that I can actually measure and I can tell if they change. And when I got to that practical sort of no nonsense stuff, I don't have to measure dopamine in my system. I don't have to wonder if I have a chemical imbalance. I can tell how I feel just by these simple metrics in my body. That was the key that turned things around. I like the way you you phrase things um, because there has been so much chaos and so many agendas been playing out when it comes to addiction and when it comes to um, to uh, treatment approaches. Um, you're quite right. No, it's a moral thing. No, it's a legal problem. We need to lock them all up. Oh no, no, no! It's a, it's a will thing, Nancy Reagan. Just don't do it. Um, and it's it's you know <laughs> shit like that, and you think, oh my god! So there's something to be said to look at it like a medical disease because it then takes it out of the prison system. It takes it out of uh, out of um, you know the, the moral kind of dilemma. So I actually like the idea of having uh, giving it a label, but you're quite right. Sometimes that label can be counterproductive. Um, there are many people who say, well, actually, uh, am I really an alcoholic? Is that really what defines me? Or where are we going? So your approach is more, no, hang on, actually, there are waves of neurochemicals which result in certain either behaviors or experiences, emotions. And it is up to me how I frame those experiences. Do I have yeah. a paraphrase to you correctly there? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I would say that the, I mean, the label of addict helped me for a period of time because hmm. it was like, oh, this is where I am. I look at it like street signs instead of identities. Like, where am I? I look around and I see the street sign and I go, oh, addiction. Oh, good. Now I know where I am. Now I can chart my way out. And then nice. it ceases to be identity, right? 
nice. And I think that is there's a very valid point there because I did certainly in in um I had a 12 step based program when I started off uh, and in the first uh, 6 months 12 months it gave me a lot it gave me a pathway it gave me a structure right. through which I could claw myself out of the, those quite desperate circumstances. But then mm-hmm. down the line, okay, now I'm sober. So what? <laughs> where to from here? And that is, I think, where then the 12-step program sometimes falls by the wayside or or not. Well, let's rephrase that. Where maybe not necessarily the 12-step programs uh, that I've experienced had the answers. Where then really, yeah. how do you grow? How do you, uh, the post-traumatic growth? the the dealing with the trauma in the past as well as with new traumas how do you do that so right yeah exactly the the 12 step programs i mean if you think about it every program is basically a a a mirror of the one who created it and bill w was never really done with his addiction with his anxieties or his depressions for the rest of his life you know, he was still searching. He was trying to promote things. And they, the people who were running the board at that point in time were like, no, he was looking at LSD, uh, like psychedelics, not LSD necessarily, but other psychedelics. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was still exploring because he was still struggling. And so I go, cool. The answers he came up with led him to that point. If I want to go elsewhere, then then there's another set of answers. But the 12 steps may have gotten me from step one to step two. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah, so. So the the moving forward piece is really fascinating. When we talk about trauma, for instance, Hmm. I had to look at trauma in the same way that I looked at addiction. What is it? And again, I ended up with seeing that this is a word, just a label on a series of experiences that people are having. And I'm not talking about blunt force trauma to the head or something, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but even that the word trauma is just a label on, look, there's a broken capillary there. There's, Mm -hmm. there's a slice in the skin there. But when somebody's talking about trauma, what are they referring to? Hmm. They're referring to kind of a biological experience they have when they think about or see some some environmental cue or they think about some memory and then their body reacts. So it's that's not what they're dealing with. They're just dealing with a bodily reaction to a thought hmm. or to, to an environmental cue. That's a lot easier to retrain than a lot of the notions around trauma. There's a guy that came to one of the retreats I run. He had been, he was, his. he never met his biological father. His mother abused him sexually, verbally, verbally, all of these different things um, from the time he was young until he was about 16 and kicked out of the house. So she would quote scripture at him while she was abusing him just to, you know, make sure that he honored his father and mother so his days would be long on the earth, you know, like, and really trying. So he was really kind of struggling with that. And he stood up for himself. He got kicked out of the house. He got taken in by another family. But then for another number of decades, he spent going to counselors and talking through things. He certified in like narrative theory and suicide prevention. He was speaking at a national level in these conventions to all people about the effects of child sexual sexual abuse. And the consensus among all of them is that trauma is a, a thing and two, something that you never really get past. It's like what made you. It's what ident- like molded your life. And that's very much the common consensus. I know there are people that sometimes talk differently about it, but it's very much still the mainstream idea. So he came and uh, <clears throat> he came to our retreat and he'd been doing some of the preparatory work we have people do for like a month or so. And then he came in and within three days, all of the stuff that he had carried, he was in his early fifties. 
all the stuff that he had carried for those four decades to five decades just evaporated about his mom. Other things came up after that that we had to look at. But all we did in those days was sort of reintroduce him to the only thing that actually lets him know if he's having a bad experience, his body. Mm-hmm. And so we we taught him how to breathe. We taught him how to move. Mm-hmm. We didn't even focus on what was going on with him. And some of the breathing stuff, I really dive into making sure they get a chance to really look at it. But most of it was like breathing and movement mm-hmm. and doing deep tissue work to work through what a lot of the research now indicates that maybe what we're calling trauma sort of is is in the fascia or in the mm. connective tissue of the body. Mm. And which is just basically like a footprint, you know, you throw a stone in the sand and it stays there. And if it never moves, then your brain makes sense of that little divot mm. as, mm. oh yeah, that's associated with that memory and it, it can bring it up. Mm. And so we're moving these things out. We're clearing out his body and literally three and a half days. And all of this stuff that he'd carried for so long just evaporates. He goes home he starts losing weight without trying like all of this weight maybe was protective his his eating habits change his cholesterol normalizes his blood pressure normalizes uh he's since lost like 130 pounds or something like that and he's in this space where he before he was like it's not possible i don't want to get disappointed i don't want to try something and fail again and now he constantly is like what else is possible his sleep apnea he had central sleep apnea that was like you know the kind that you don't really get rid of it's there for life it's a brain kind of misfire it went away just with the simple processes that we're doing and it's breathing and movement and tension release and all these other things in a very deliberate manner specifically aimed at how is your mind making sense of your reality considering that it isn't in touch with the outside world your brain the only thing it knows about the outside always comes through the filter of your body yeah so if your body's angsty and and Mm -hmm. kind of torn up then it doesn't matter if outside is sunshine and rainbows that's coming through the filter of your angsty and torn up body which means it will feel very different and if you clean the box out all of a sudden the outside world transforms i love it and that's of course where the trauma focused yoga comes in trauma-focused movements and it is i mean you can label uh, exercise in many different fashions from yoga to um deep stretching exercises uh, connective tissue massage exactly there is it is it's essentially an overlapping uh beast here where basically a lot of people come from different i don't know belief systems or give it different names but it's the same thing that ends up uh actually improving you and it is actually quite amazing when you get the opportunity to do something like that it is uh so many people think uh what a heap of baloney um having said that uh i have become a breath coach myself i've become yeah. a flexibility coach myself um and here i am i had two nights ago i had to i was i was on a webinar and it bought the pants off me and i thought i was getting angry i'm wasting an hour here but i really need to be and then i realized hey hang on and i did some beautiful deep stretches and for the next 45 minutes i actually did a stretch program and I felt so good afterwards. Talk about changing your state. 
talk about changing your physical body. Um, and actually then within five or 10 minutes that anger was gone. And I actually sort of half listened to it, half not. And I actually realized then the next day, actually there were a few good little nuggets of information in there. That was actually not bad. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can, by taking action, deliberate action, and living intentionally in a certain way, you can, you can change what is happening to you, what is happening around you. So whilst you might not be able to influence the outside world so much, but you can certainly influence how you perceive the outside world. And that is gold. That is an amazing yeah. thing. And that's that's what you are all about, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the way that I tell, I talk to my clients about this is, you know, the, if I, if I divide it into like four different steps, the first step is the outside world. The first area is like yeah. the outside world. And I mean, as much as we'd like to say we can control the outside world. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good on you for trying. <laughs> I, I mean, like there's, there's variables in there, like the weather and whether or not your neighbor farts and like, whether or not your wife is having a bad day mm -hmm. and like the guy that pulls in front of you in traffic, there's, there's so many variables mm -hmm. and the process, it's not bad to try and control your environment, but no. you have to rely on that for the well being inside that makes addiction and depression and all these things go away on their right. own is, is man, that's a shit show. And so to, to, to move inward, you go, okay, well then what's the next step? Here's what happens. The environment changes in some way. The next thing that happens is automatically, spontaneously, and in perfect sync with that, your body has a reaction to it. Sun rises, melatonin production changes, like this, you start producing more vitamin D, like your body is constantly in this dance with the environment. Mm -hmm. That's the place that I'll call instinct. And what informs instinct as a baby is very little because they've never encountered any of this stuff before. So they sit there wide-eyed like... Uh, <laughs> you know, and then you make a loud noise and they go, you know, and, and because it's new. And so as they learn to like, oh, wow, the last time I engaged with that, it went this way, it starts to build this direct, immediately recognition of the environment. Mm -hmm. So instinct is your body's reaction, plus the immediate non like, cognitive recognition of what happens, you have this instinct. Then the next thing that happens is your brain is looking at everything, including all the stuff that happened in your body, and it's going, what's going on here? I remember when this happened before. This means X. Right. And so, because it's looking at your body, like, we're uncomfortable. That Well, the last time this happened, there was a bear attacking, so there's probably a bear. And so then your body tenses up even more, and that, yeah. that's number four, the body's reaction to the brain. Most of the, a lot of, like, Cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, is dealing with like change your thoughts and change your actions, and then you'll change your feelings. So that's working on three and four, which is great. And over time, we're, we're doing this, right? Over time, if you continue to change an action, then it can become a habit and eventually you can, can become a muscle memory. Hmm. What I was interested in is number two, not going to the bathroom. I mean, like number two as an instinct. Right? <laughs> I, was like, I, yeah. I was interested in can I make happiness an instinct? Can I make well-being and freedom an instinct so that like, I don't have to think about it. My body handles it on its own. Ooh. And my brain never gets the little uptick that says, oh, there's a problem here. 
I was like, can I change the Lego set? Right now I got Harry Potter and Voldemort with his basilisk in the basement of the castle and it's dark and dreary and there's whispering and voices and Slytherin hates me. Can I change it to like Bob the Builder or something a little bit more happy-go-lucky, you know? And if I change the Lego set that my brain gets to build experience out of, I'm going to have a different experience. Huh. What tipped me into this was all of this martial arts training. I mean, I've trained since I was eight years old. And I was never really interested in like in the ring fighting. So I'm not going to pretend to be a great fighter. But I I trained a lot with these special forces people and the, these Russians out there that that are training elite soldiers to be like the perfect soldier that are not ruffled, that are not ravaged by the horrors of war, that don't have remorse or pain or anything like that, that are still loving human beings that are effective, but not needlessly violent, can fight on all terrain. You think about Russia, they got to handle the Mongolians on their horses and the Europeans and the Vikings coming up, the you know, and the Persians, they were like pirates to the Persians. And so all this various ter terrain and all of these different things and have a really strong spirit about them because it's freaking cold most of the year. And so in the middle of that, I'm training this. And there was a point at which Vladimir, who uh, um, is like one of the main teachers of it, he's sitting there teaching. And another one of my teachers was there. And he was telling a story about how he was fighting this German spy. And this German spy got around behind him and started choking him out in the neck. And everybody's like, what happened? What happened? He's like, you joked me out, you know? And they're all like, oh, okay. And then he's like, you don't understand. You know, while I was choked out, uh, while I was unconscious, I broke his arm and I got away. You know, like what? He trained himself to fight while unconscious so that he didn't have to think about it. And this idea of instinct became like, wait a second, I can train this so that it becomes an instinct. So that as I teach my system where it what it's like home base is that any tiny deviation starts to become an opportunity for me to change things so that instead of waiting until the train's 10 feet away to get away from it it was like i can hear it a mile off and i don't even have to work hard because i'm i just take one step and i'm off the tracks and that came through practice of breathing it came through a lot of this martial arts stuff that we do at our retreats using things like knives or using things like sticks and things to help bring people to the, a stressed state yeah. and realize they have other ways of getting out of it really quickly. They discover a new relationship to stress. They start to understand where their body gets uncomfortable. Yeah. And then they start to learn to trust their discomfort because whenever discomfort arises, they know I need to change something. And then all of a sudden it doesn't build up into stress. It doesn't build up into this stuff. So what happens? Uh, oh. About six, ago six months ago i was I did, I did a workout in the morning and i hadn't eaten yet and we were just about to run a retreat and i was trying to do work stuff and i, I pushed it too hard and so all of a sudden my body is in this mode where it's like thinks it's gonna die and i end up in a panic attack so i'm in this panic attack and i'm like for just a minute i'm like oh no i don't got time for this so i go sit down to try and write out some of the things that i need to do and all of a sudden my handwriting goes nutso and i can't do anything and then in that moment yeah. it only took like a minute my body took over and it did the exact breathing practices that i've teach people and then it started doing these other things and i'm watching it going like sweet i like don't even have to worry about panic attacks anymore this is amazing <laughs> and uh you know within like five like four or five minutes i was out of it and i was just feeling wonderful and peaceful and it, and at calm and at ease. And I was like, this is amazing. This is an instinct. That's what I want for everybody. Beautiful.
but then again you are uh you're training yourself to create a habit um you're practicing it again and again and again and you practice it at, at easy times at good times and by having created such a strong habit it therefore becomes a normal fallback position for your for your body to jump into uh when things don't go so bad don't go so well shall i say and which is beautiful but i mean that takes time that takes it takes time to create a habit so uh, the even under the best circumstances what is what do you guess when do people change how long do you need to practice to become more proficient proficient enough to actually see a breakthrough this this is the great question right because i was the consummate skeptic i had i was so tired of trying things where they would say it's going to take you a month or it's going to take oh, two months yeah just like when i try supplements and i'm like i don't notice any difference yeah but they're like, no no you have to take it for a long time i'm like i'm not noticing a difference <laughs> in my experience so i didn't want it to i didn't want it to wait within the first day you should feel the difference that the practices make yeah. within a week you give it a week if you're not noticing like oh this actually helps me throughout my day a little bit mm -hmm. or at least helps me start it or at least helps me calm down at a certain point if it's not helping you then you have that as information and you can make a choice the key here is play it has to be done with as much play as possible. If we can mm. get past the idea that anybody is broken, nobody's mm. broken. If you have an addiction, what does this mean? It means you're genius, that you found a way to survive. By the way, you have a 100% success rate, a way to survive everything that life threw at you. And maybe it's not the way you want to survive. That's cool. Mm. But you, the genius of your life is you found a way that has helped you cope and not end it and not lash out at other people unnecessarily and not do some of the things that you would. You're a genius. And if you can learn that trick, then you can learn another one. You just got to change <laughs> your jobs. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. It's, so like what we've got to do is like turn it into something that's playful. Hmm. When your brain can make new synapses, I think a lot of the data indicates it's like several hundred times in order to form a really stable synapse. Hmm. It's like two to 400 times. But they've found in some research that when done in a state of play, it's only 10 to 20 times repetition. So when you're when you're playful, one of the first things I, I used to have people do is make a list of all the things that make you light up that you just love. And that's like running through the sprinklers barefoot, putting your head in the freezer, eating your favorite food, the big things going on hiking expedition, everything. And, and then start to incorporate that into your day so that there is more buoyancy and more play in your day. Mm -hmm. Because what entertains you trains you. And so if you're going to entertain yourself with getting over addiction or getting over depression or getting over anxiety is a hard thing, then you're going to train yourself to see it and feel it as if it's a hard thing. Ooh. But when you train yourself to see it and feel it like it's a game, like it's a piece of cake, like it doesn't exist, there's no such thing as anxiety, that's a label. What's happening? You're breathing weird, you're standing awful, maybe you're dehydrated, go get a drink. That's easy. All of a sudden, this is really simple. So we gotta build an awareness into your life. Really, 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 really simple. That's the first bit. And it's basically pause stop what you're doing and actually think and feel what is happening yep. here 
And I think that is the, the most dreaded thing for many people out there. It's certainly I mean, going back to, to rehab. I mean, 10 years ago, um, the, the most dreaded session was the feeling session where basically he was sitting around in a circle, no shades, no hats with caps, no nothing. Um, <laughs> and no one said a bloody word. And until <laughs> someone said something, then uh, either the feathers flew in in, in, in people in rage, you ate all the cookies last night, or, you know, and, and, and suddenly you, you were sitting there and you were happy, sad, but you had to feel it and you couldn't run away. You couldn't look on the phone or drink or shoot up or look at porn. Uh, no, you had to experience the emotion. And yeah. that was dreaded, dreaded by a lot of people. Um, and But it is so important because our body is telling us stories all the time. It's giving us feedback. It's telling us, it gives us warning signals that maybe we have burned the candle to on both ends, that we haven't drunk, that we are that we are actually actually close to hypoglycemic. You know, you need some breakfast. Um, all that we don't don't look after ourselves. So here you are. Oh, I love it how you how you're rephrasing those things. And you're just it's essentially there's not so much groundbreaking new stuff there. But having said that, the moment I say that, I have to say it is actually groundbreaking because you are actually saying, Yeah, we can do that much easier. Don't make it a hard job, make it playful. I love that. But that is a huge huge jump in the brain that is a huge task because after all most of us are ashamed full of guilt um that is we are considering us a failure for even having the thought of a drink or having the thought uh, having a low day um looking into all the advertisement campaigns i must be you know i must be drinking coke by the gallon and i'm gonna be sugar sweet and gonna be fine and you know that's how it's supposed to be um yeah about that <laughs> so where do we go from here where do we go i mean this is this is this is on the one hand we are we are more and more escaping our reality with social media with everything you name it um there is a more and more expectation of an immediate satisfaction and yet here we are saying well actually no no, no stop feel um how do you how do you organize something like that yeah i uh i think one of the biggest things to understand like i think mindfulness as it has come to happen in the west is really a far cry from mindfulness that i studied for years that's like old school Zen mindfulness. In the West, mindfulness is like stop, feel your feelings, name them. You know, some people go as far as like, if it were a color, what would it be? What would the, mm. you know, like really feel the feeling and, um, you know, kind of get involved, name it, be vulnerable with those things. That's not mindfulness as it originated. Mindfulness as it originated, would they be like, yeah, let watch your thoughts go by like clouds in the sky? That isn't. Now look at the cloud. Now what shapes do you see in the cloud? Now what does what does the water vapor of the cloud taste like? That's mind. That's like being totally entrapped in the mind. Right. So mind this is being totally like that came and went. Like this emotion doesn't matter because there's other things happening. That's a that's a long path of training for those guys. And and 
So like what I had to figure out was how do I create this sort of tactical freedom, something that can happen on the fly, something that's very simple, very easy. Mm -hmm. What people don't realize is that the source of the greatest happiness on their planet is just the way the body functions when it's at ease. It can mm -hmm. produce, like you hear yogis talk of these bliss states, like it'll do that on its own. You don't have to go climb the Himalayas. I've done it. I've climbed the Himalayas. <laughs> you don't have to go do that stuff. It can happen on its own in your own bedroom, really simply with some basic things. Mm -hmm. So the basic things are, right now, most people are managing their internal chemistry from the outside. They're relying on an oxytocin rush from, from physical contact with another human being. They're relying on painkillers from opioids or something else. They're relying on alcohol mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, just to kind of like take the edge off they're mm. they're relying on sitcoms and youtube and whatnot just to relax quote unquote relax never mind that they're putting their body through a lot more processing and other types of things mm. uh you know pornography for excitement or for a sense of like being wanted when they're not being so they're external things mm. and the only reason those external things work is because your body can produce it on its own already mm. so we have this receptor um for in our body, and that creates an enzyme called you, you probably know this anandamide, you've heard of this, right? Mm -hmm. And that the only reason that cannabis, marijuana, all that stuff makes it happen, like uh, has the effect that it has on us is because we already have this built into us, meaning we already produce the chemical that attaches to that receptor. Mm -hmm. And that chemical is called anandamide. Ananda is the Sanskrit word for bliss or happiness. So what I do is I start teaching people how to access this, like how to use the breath or how to use movement to, to access this sense mm -hmm. of like utter well-being without any dependence on the outside world. How does that work? At first, we started like, how can you play more in your life, right? We're still using the outside world, but maybe a little bit more intelligently, <laughs> right? And then what I have them do, the first thing I have start having them do is a daily routine. But I have it, I have them download an audio and set it as their alarm so that they just set their alarm in the morning and it wakes up with these birds chirping and then a singing bowl goes gong, like nice and smooth. So it's not just a beep, 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 you know? And then afterwards, I, it's my voice guiding them through. All right, close your eyes, stretch, yawn. And the first eight minutes, they stay in bed. Mm. And I'm just guiding them through how to start to work their body up so that they're not starting their day stressing themselves out going, Oh, I got to go. I got to do this thing. And they're starting with adrenaline and stuff. No, we want to, we want to put the engine on idle first and get the oil through the whole engine mm -hmm. before we start revving the engine. And so I have them run through this and it's, then it's some basic breath work. Um, the morning one we do is kind of Wim Hof style. So it's very similar to, I mean, he's the one that sort of popularized this popularized this super ventilation kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I've added a couple of things to it that really helped to challenge some stuff, but predominantly it's that. Then I get them up and they get out of bed and then they do some basic stretches to warm up the spine that I'm guiding them through. And then after that 15 minutes, I tell them, go get a green smoothie, you know, start with the good. And, uh, and because you know, if we start the day with good stuff, maybe it'll crowd out some of the bad. And if they're waking up better, then the rest of their day can start going a little bit better. Then they don't build up as much stress. And then I have them do an evening routine, which is just a relaxation protocol with a different type of breathing and tension to kind of like let go of stuff in the day. So if they go to bed a little better, they get up a little better. They go to bed a little better. They get up a little better. Incrementally, we're changing their baseline. So that when, did you ever do the experiment in school 
where you had three bowls of water. One was hot, one was cold, and one was like room temperature. Did mm-hmm. you ever do this one? It, my school times are quite a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair enough. You put your hands on either side. One's yeah. hot, one's cold. Waited there for a minute. Mm-hmm. And you put them both in the room temperature one. And the one that was in the hot experiences room temperature is cold. Mm-hmm. One that was in the cold experienced room temperature is hot. Yeah. So if I'm starting to heat their life up in joy a little bit, in freedom, then all of a sudden during the day, they start to experience what they thought was comfort, what they thought was ease, what they thought was the best way to live as, no, that's colder than I like to live. And so by turning up the ratchet, all of a sudden we turn up their sensitivity to the things that are creating the discomfort on the inside. So first thing to do is that I have them do is just to start to book in their day. And then if they have a really bad time in the day, I just tell them, you have the audio, start over at noon. (laughs) Nice, nice, nice. That actually makes a hell of a lot of sense. That is such a really nice way of of, uh, reprogramming your day. And if you think about it, 15 minutes is the equivalent to 1% of your day. So, so far, you haven't spent a huge amount. You have, you have just 1%, 1% uh-huh. of your day. Do you think you can invest 1% in your day? I think so. Even 2%. I think you can. Maybe you should. <laughs> and there you are. Wow. Wow. So, breath work, exercise, stretching those fascia. Um, uh, having said that, many patients will have been so long in misery that their fascia are a bit like concrete and um you can't just do two stretches and that's it worse they try to stretch and the next thing is they've got pain um how do you go about that so there's two things one most of the people that come to me are people that have been in this for a long time whether it's chronic pain that we're dealing with and some of the autoimmune diseases and stuff that we that i work with or whether it's you depression, anxiety, they've been there for a long time. So we have the, the reason I have these retreats, these five day retreats is because then I get to be one on one with everybody. Right. And I get to actually start to move through the system. And so I can accelerate it really, really quickly. On their own, though, it's I think it's important to recognize in, in China, with the like gentle movements that you do, like Tai Chi and mm-hmm. Qigong and stuff, the rule of thumb is whatever your maximum is, you go 70%, mm. which doesn't sound like an American Western sort of mentality. It's mm. like, no, no, go like this, but then we got to max out. And then we go like this, we got to max out. We're going to mm. increase our max. Mm. But they're always saying like, stay at 70%. And if one side's injured, both sides, you stay lower. Because what you're after is this feeling of of like ease. And it's almost like a floating effervescent feeling like so, mm. like uh, soda bubbles in mineral water or something mm. like that feeling through it runs through my skin it runs through the inside of my body mm. and i t- teach them how to move in a way that is undisturbed so tension brings energy mm. but just limited tension so that you don't contract so much doesn't waste all the extra so you just build this excess of energy and so it's almost like getting tickled on the inside like a little shower on the inside of your skin that, and so that's what I'm teaching them how to do. So the stretches are, yeah, stretch a little bit and come up. But then we have them move in these ways that are focused on feeling like your bones are floating. Mm-hmm. And if you start to, if you, even if you did it with your head and you just imagine like the head just sort of floats to the side and back, mm. 
there's a certain sort of like gentleness that starts to happen, like a certain feeling on the inside. And if you just let your eyeballs relax some, I, I used to do this at the back of church. Sometimes when I was a little bit bored, I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to move my head around and I'd feel wonderful. And people are like, you know, how was church? And I'm like, I felt great. I have no idea what anybody said, but I feel great. <laughs> so, okay. so like, the, because the secret is there, it's in your body. And yeah. whether you believe it was created by a God or whether it's just this magnificent product of evolution, mm. wherever it came from, the design of it is brilliant. All the people saying, well, who, why did humans stand up in the first place? And this is a mm. horrible like, who cares? Like, you can call it a problem. You can call yourself a problem all your life. I don't know that that affirmation is going to get you anywhere. But if you, <laughs> you know, but if, if you if you call yourself an opportunity, and that this body really is an opportunity, they could teach you, man, there's so much goodness. So when I'm having them do these stretches in the morning, yeah. it, it is to like, what is the edge? And then like, dance around that edge, feel it, move with it. Feel what it's like to start to move gently with it. Oh. And you come up with this, this just effervescent feeling inside of your skin. And that's very different than like pushing yourself through the pain. You don't have to push mm. through pain. Mm. Pain's a production of the mind anyway. It's not in the body. So like, but you don't have to push through pain. That's that's an idea that has we've tried on the planet. But you don't have to experience discomfort as pain. You can experience it as a whole different world of adventure and all these other things. So... I love the way you're rephrasing things and reframing things. Um, it is to to just consider the challenges and the pain and your fuss here as opportunities. I like that. I like that a lot. And for those of you out there who are skeptic and think, God, these two numb nuts, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> there are certainly, there are certainly more, more studies coming out to point to the importance of the fascia. The fascia is the kind of grizzle around the steak um, that you normally would cut off of the meat. So it's the stuff that surrounds the muscles uh, in your body. And we sort of in the past as anatomy students, we were sort of like, yeah, okay, that's that's a shit to be so peel off and yeah, deal with. Saran wrap. Yeah. Exactly. The, yeah. But it's not. There is actually so much more that the body has has to show us and even nowadays in 2023 um, we are still at the start of learning how this magnificent uh, body actually works and it is people like you who are going out there to to reframe um, certain concepts and just give it in this case a rather playful uh, nudge and see why don't we try something new and that is that is the attitude which which we with which we can explore with which we can change with which we can grow and because you know for some people it's beautiful to go to church um but for many people when they're in church what do they do they they sing they rise up they float now didn't we just talk about that um so here you are so there are similarities there um having said that uh they are just doing it out of the because their body actually wants to do it but here you are actually saying no why don't we do give that a bit more structure why don't we uh give that a bit more intention and focus and suddenly suddenly things are are are, are happening and i think that is the that is where the magic is when you begin to feel that something is happening 
uh, going back to two nights ago when I did, didn't want to do that deep stretch, but I did. And it was actually beautiful. Next day, I felt like a complete different man. Uh, and it was just nice. And there is the proof lies in the pudding. So why don't you give it a shot? Why don't you um, surround yourself with someone like Bob and, and other like-minded people uh, in a retreat, for example, um, and go out there to actually just experience something like that? Uh, it is said that if you surround yourself constantly with six millionaires, you're going to be a millionaire. Uh, it's hard not to become one. Um, it's the same when you actually surround yourself with people who can coach you towards becoming a better human being. It's very hard for you to fail in becoming a better human being. So I think that is where the, the power of, of people like you, Bob, um, is there because you have actually put your mind uh, to it and you have, you have uh, established a framework through which we can grow. And that's beautiful. It might not fit everyone. That's gifted. Let's take that as given. Okay. But bottom line is, what can you possibly have to lose? If your life is at the moment, if you're with the back to the wall, if you're feeling like shit, and if there is so much that you have tried and nothing ever helped, then I would say congratulations. You know, like Thomas Alpha Edison. Uh, he he didn't fail 2,000 times. He found 2,000 ways how not to make a light bulb. There you go. So Bob is not different. He has developed a different approach. And I actually... Um, I'm a little bit peeved that I'm sitting on the other side of the world. Um, otherwise, <laughs> I, otherwise, I would actually check you out, my friend. Um, Sibu, <laughs> I got yeah. a guy coming from Australia here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Um, so no, I think there is there is so much to be said about uh, about your approach, which makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. Um, wow. But you have also written a book. So we, for those people who can't actually go, show us your book. Go and tell us okay. about your book. So Built for Freedom, it has a heck of a long subtitle because I wanted everybody to know what it was about. The idea of Built for Freedom is that you were built already for freedom. Your body's designed for it if you know how to do it. So it's like adventures through stress, anxiety, depression, addiction, trauma, pain, and our body's innate ability to leave them all behind. So wacko science, fighter pilot stories, you know, long, you know, deep dive down some of the stuff we've covered here with like the history of addiction and whatnot. To kind of come out the other end, I wrote this with the intention that somebody who reads this by the end, they come out going, holy cow, maybe there's nothing wrong with me. Mm. This makes a lot of sense. I understand now what's going on. And I can, it's simpler than I thought. And maybe it can go away faster than I thought. Nice. And if I just play the right way and entertain myself with things that drain my body to just live in freedom, then I don't have to sit here and have an unpaid career in healing for the rest of my life. I can just... <laughs> I just free and actually live the way that I want to. Everybody's like, I got to live up to my potential. Well, if you're free, you can do it. If if you're busy at meetings, you have less time. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast because we'll get a link to uh, Bob's book there. And Bob, where can they find you? What is your website? What is your, your social media? Yeah, so website is thefreedomspecialist.com. There is a the at the beginning at thefreedomspecialist.com. There's links there to my podcast, to um, a place to get the book, to the uh, to the um, you know the programs that we run, the retreats yeah. we run, a place to go sign up to schedule a call if you want to talk through your situation and see what might be best. 
that's all there. Um, the podcast is available. It's free. There's a couple hundred episodes in there to, we have a good time. We play a lot, <laughs> so, but we, <laughs> we're just challenging everything that, that everything, you know, um, science is brought forward by people who are willing to challenge the status quo exactly. and what was heretical in one, in one era becomes mainstream in the next, you know, and <laughs> I so like that. this is a little bit of a challenge to the psychology industry and to mm -hmm. even some of the medical industry. But, you know, the good scientists welcome the challenge and they also go, we want data to back it up. So they yep. build the research. I'm just going out doing stuff. And uh, so it's a place you can find us for sure. Social media, we're on Instagram. I think I am built for freedom. I don't post there much. Mm. I'm too busy with people. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that's beautiful. Guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. Watch it on there. Press the like, press the subscribe button. And maybe leave us a message. Tell us oh, what, a, what a rubbish that was. Or tell us, well, actually, this cool is this this dude is cool. Whatever it is, um, leave us some feedback because it's just lovely to know that that maybe we have touched something inside of you, um, maybe planted a seed for you to grow because that is what this is all about. I strongly, strongly believe that we can grow, that it's in inevitable for us to become better once we live more intentional and actually start putting some of those little changes into the play every single day don't make huge magnificent changes you don't need to to go to the to the god or sitting in the perfect lotus position on the highest mountain no it's making one percent change every day even half a percent and you have no idea where you will grow into who you will grow into and Bob is the living example there. Well, I'm not so much behind him. Um, so that's cool. We both are on our ways. Um, so why don't you come along, guys? Bob, you're an amazing man. You're an amazing guest. I had a ball of a time. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. You are welcome. I hope it wasn't as, as boring as the webinar. <laughs> oh, well, no, 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 no. On the contrary, I might even listen to that once or twice to our show here that we have recorded because there are a lot of nuggets in there that were very good. And it does. It only shows it doesn't matter how far along the path you are uh, as a leader, so to speak. Um, it's so good to surround yourself with other people, other free thinkers, um, so that you can actually maybe doubt yourself and maybe become, huh, maybe I should relook at that, etc. We all have got opportunities to grow. And for that, I thank you so much, Bob. <laughs> oh, my, my pleasure. And hopefully everybody got something good out of it. Absolutely. You guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Bye. Bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.